Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. For our feature today, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sands talk about the EPA delisting of a Superfund site in East Chicago, Indiana. That's coming up later in the program, but first your environmental headlines. The Indiana Environmental Reporter says the Southwestern Indiana Citizens for Quality of Life and Valley Watch, both environmental organizations in southern Indiana, are challenging the extension of a state air quality permit allowing the construction of a coal-to-diesel plant in Dale, Indiana. Earth Justice, a nonprofit environmental law firm, filed an appeal on behalf of the groups with the Office of Environmental Adjudication to stop the extension of an Indiana Department of Environmental Management permit issued to Riverview Energy Corporation. The current permit was set to expire in December and has now been extended to June 2022. The previous permit required Riverview to begin construction of its proposed coal-to-diesel plant in Dale, Spencer County, within 18 months. Construction has never started. The two environmental groups say IDEM didn't hold a public comment period before using the extension, and it hasn't explained why. During the 2018 permit comment period, the agency received 232 public comments against and 10 in favor of issuing the permit. The proposed plant would be the first of its kind built in North America. The coal to diesel process would pulverize coal and mix it with an oil, such as crude oil, creating a slurry. Hydrogen from natural gas would be added to the slurry, creating ultra-low sulfur diesel. According to Riverview's own calculations, the plant would release around 2.2 million tons of carbon dioxide, 225 tons of carbon monoxide, and 120 tons of sulfur dioxide annually. The site of the proposed plant is within a mile of a nursing home, two miles of an elementary school, and many residential homes. U.S. renewables developer Scout Clean Energy has completed construction on a 130-megawatt wind farm in Jay County, Indiana. The wind farm uses General Electric wind turbines. Construction began in August 2019. Due to health and safety measures put in place, construction was completed without a single case of the COVID-19 virus. The project has a tax incentive agreement in place with Jay County, which will result in $1.5 million in economic development payments being made for the benefit of several local community initiatives. 
It is estimated that the county will also receive more than $18 million in tax revenues over the expected life of the project, with over half going directly to Jay County Schools. The town of Hamlet in southern North Carolina has a population of about 2,300 people. More than a third are Black, Latino, or Native American. 62% of the households are low income, with many earning less than $15,000 annually. The town has higher rates than the state average of deaths from heart disease, stroke, cancer, and diabetes, plus elevated infant and child death rates. The rates of hospitalizations related to asthma are also above the state average. Hamlet is a classic example of environmental racism, the siting of polluting facilities in communities of color and low-income communities. The company Industrial Tie Disposal is planning to build an industrial plant located adjacent to a CSX rail yard that would process creosote-treated railroad ties and emit tons of air pollution into the Hamlet area, already suffering from pollution. Creosote is a probable human carcinogen. The facility would release carbon monoxide and particulate matter, both components of toxic air pollution. According to the company's air permit applications, the plant would also emit such toxic and hazardous air pollutants as the carcinogens benzene and methylene chloride. Since both CSX and International Tie consume and dispose of millions of railroad ties, they're choosing to build a processing plant, which would be cheaper than disposing of the ties in a hazardous waste dump. Both disposal methods are highly toxic. The diesel trains at the CSX rail yard also pollute Hamlet's air. The residents of Hamlet are worried about the pollution and their health. Quote, it's going to be poisonous for our community. First they push Enviva, the wood pellet plant, on us. And now this, end quote, said Chad Gardner, who lives 500 yards from the proposed site. Fewer than 300 wolverines are left in the lower 48 states, and climate change is destroying their habitat. They need help, but the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service doesn't concur. The service recently denied wolverines protections under the Endangered Species Act that would prevent the species from going extinct. Wolverines once roamed over much of the country, but because of a century of trapping, the animals in the lower 48 today exist only as small, fragmented populations in Idaho, Montana, Washington, Wyoming, and northeast Oregon. In the few remaining places where wolverines live, the species faces a direct threat from climate disruption. Wolverines depend on areas with deep snow through late spring because pregnant females dig their dens into this snowpack to give birth to and raise their young. Snowpack is already in decline in the western mountains. The worsening climate is predicted to exacerbate that trend. If the attack on wolverines weren't bad enough, the Fish and Wildlife Service is now going after gray wolves. It recently finalized a rule removing Endangered Species Act protection for gray wolves across the country, except for a small population of Mexican gray wolves in Arizona and New Mexico. 
The service made that decision about gray wolves, despite the fact that wolves are still functionally extinct in the vast majority of their former range across the continental U.S. An independent panel of scientists that the service itself convened agreed that it's too soon for the survival of the species to delist them now. Wolves once roamed across much of the U.S., but were almost entirely eradicated by the turn of the century after decades of government-sponsored extermination efforts because of their reintroduction in the 1990s and the strong protections of the Endangered Species Act. Wolves have been making a significant comeback. However, in places like Northern California and the Pacific Northwest, wolves have just started to be re-established. They have not yet reclaimed their prime habitat and their critical role in the ecosystem in Colorado, Utah, and Maine. The Trump administration formalized its intention to open up Alaska's pristine Tongass National Forest, an intact temperate rainforest, to logging and development, the Washington Post reported. The U.S. Department of Agriculture first announced its intention to lift the forest's roadless rule last month, but it had to wait 30 days before entering its final decision into the Federal Register. The pre-publication notice now posted will make it legal for companies to build roads and harvest timber from 9.3 million acres of the forest. Quote, While tropical rainforests are the lungs of the planet, the Tongass is the lungs of North America. End quote. Dominic De La Sala, chief scientist with the Earth Island Institute's Wild Heritage Project, told the Washington Post, The Tongass National Forest is home to centuries-old western hemlock, cedar, and sitka spruce trees. The forest teems with life and is noted for rich biodiversity, including the largest known concentration of bald eagles, according to The Guardian. The decision to roll back the roadless rule on the Tongass was made in spite of Southeast Alaskans and their communities. Southeast Alaska Conservation Council Executive Director Meredith Trainer said in a statement, quote, In making this decision, the Trump administration and the sham rulemaking process they undertook in our region ignored economic realities, environmental imperatives, and worst of all, the will of the people who actually live here, end quote. In fact, in the public comment period, 96% of the comments were in favor of keeping the rule in place. The lifting of the rule also ignores the resolutions from six Southeast Alaska tribes and six nearby city councils opposed to lifting protections. Tribes involved in the planning of a compromise to open up some of Tongass withdrew from the project three weeks ago. The tribal leader said, quote, we refuse to allow legitimacy upon a process that has disregarded our input at every turn, end quote, according to the Washington Post. The AP reported that a large portion of the roadless areas is wildlife habitats, as well as ice fields and glaciers that exist nowhere else in the national forest system, according to the U.S. Forest Service. Critics balked at the idea of sacrificing the forest to provide benefits to the timber and mining industries. Quote, it's ironic that this administration is trying to tout this president's environmental record when Trump is unwinding environmental safeguards all over the place, end quote, said Ken Raid, project director of the Pew Charitable Trust. He added that lifting protections on the Tongass, the nation's flagship forest, is about the most egregious of all of them. 
The Halbender salamander is a species of aquatic giant found in the eastern and central United States. The Hellbender, which is much larger than all other salamanders in its geographic range, employs an unusual means of respiration, which involves cutaneous gas exchange. It has been around for 65 million years. The species is listed as near-threatened on the red list of threatened species. The large Arctic research expedition in history returned to Germany Monday after 13 months in the Arctic, including several months with its ship deliberately trapped by sea ice, according to the New York Times. The mission aboard the German Alfred Wegener Institute's Polar Stern ship spent the year gathering vital information that would give scientists a window into the future of the Arctic during the climate crisis. Quote, we witnessed how the Arctic Ocean is dying, end quote, said Marcus Rex, the mission's leader. Quote, we saw this process right outside our windows or when we walked on the brittle ice, end quote. The team aboard the Polar Stern comprised more than 300 scientists from 20 countries, including the U.S., Britain, France, Russia, and China. According to Rex, the dramatic consequences of a warming planet were evident in an area he described as the epicenter of climate change. The trip to measure the ice and gauge conditions in one of the planet's harshest environments cost $177 million, and the mission almost had to be abandoned months early when the coronavirus was detected on the mission. The researchers had to break away from the ice in May to get new supplies and to rotate team members in order to adhere to new coronavirus protocols. And yet, the expedition was able to stay the course and complete its research. Quote, We're bringing back a trove of data along with countless samples of ice cores, snow, and water, end quote, said Rex, an atmospheric scientist at Germany's Alfred Wegener Institute for Polar and Ocean Research. The observations of the crew reflect a grim future for the Arctic. Rex warned that if the current warming trend the planet is on continues, then soon the Arctic will see ice-free summers. At the North Pole itself, we found badly eroded, melted, thin, and brittle ice, said Rex. While the returning crew is optimistic that the trove of samples and data they brought home will paint a clearer picture of how the Arctic is changing, the results will take years, and maybe even decades, to sift through and analyze, according to Melinda Webster, a sea ice expert at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. One of the consequences of an open Arctic Ocean is there will be a lot of pressure to fish the area. Cold water fish, such as cod and halibut, have moved into the Arctic Ocean as their last refuge. History tells us that eventually all market fish populations will be attacked and largely eradicated. And now for our feature today, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sands talk about the EPA delisting of a Superfund site in East Chicago, Indiana. What we've done during this administration is focus on the results of getting these sites cleaned up and delisted so that they can be reused by the public, it removes the environmental contamination, and it provides property for, for um, local communities to redevelop or use for parks. That was EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler talking to The Federalist about the Trump administration's Superfund actions in the last four years. 
The EPA is touting the full and partial removal of 27 Superfund sites from a list tracking the nation's most contaminated sites as Trump administration victories, despite decades of cleanup, persistent contamination threats, and concerns expressed by local authorities. The EPA fully deleted 14 Superfund sites and partially deleted 13 sites, including three in Indiana from the National Priorities List. In Indiana, the Douglas Road Uniroyal Inc. landfill in Mishawaka, the Fort Wayne Reduction Dump, and the USS-led Superfund site in East Chicago were partially deleted from the MPL. But some environmental threats remain at those sites. The deletions mean specific conditions for cleanup set at the time the sites were added to the MPL have been fully or partially met. Partial deletions allow developers or investors to make money off the delisted portions of a site even as cleanup of toxic substances continues at other parts of the site. What we've done during this administration is focus on the results of getting these sites cleaned up and delisted so that they can be reused by the public. Um, it removes the environmental contamination and it provides um, property for, for um, local communities to redevelop or use for parks. The Trump administration has prioritized deleting Superfund sites from the NPL, pursuing a historic rate of deletions while claiming them as environmental victories for the administration. In the first year of the Trump administration, the EPA deleted two sites from the MPL and partially deleted four. The EPA then deleted 18 full sites and four partial sites in 2018. In 2019, the EPA deleted 12 full sites and 15 partial sites. But the deletions, in most instances, are not due to any special action taken by the EPA to get those sites cleaned up. The deletions are the culmination of decades worth of cleanup spanning multiple presidential administrations. And another thing, the deletion of the Indiana sites does not mean the threat of contamination is over. In East Chicago, the notorious USS-led Superfund site is being delisted a little at a time, but the contamination threat is not over. The U.S. Smelter and Lead Refinery Inc. site housed a lead refining facility from 1920 to 1972 and later became a secondary lead smelter until 1985. The EPA has found evidence of toxic and persistent heavy metals, lead, lead slag, and other chemicals permeating soil and spilling into surface and groundwater at and around the U.S. Smelter and Lead Refinery Inc. facility since the early 1980s. According to EPA investigators, in the early 1980s, workers at the facility appeared to casually haul large amounts of lead flue dust in front-end loaders from five 6,000-ton piles, resulting in large amounts of the dust spilling into the facility grounds or being carried off by the wind. Soil samples taken at the facility were found to contain as much as 16% lead, and a chemical analysis found lead flowing from the plant at 3,400 parts per billion, or hundreds of times the amount needed for environmental and health authorities to take action. The investigators concluded that the local population was being exposed to contamination through the flue dust and lead pollution from the facility entering drainage ditches and moving into the Grand Calumet River. The facility stopped operating in December 1985, but the pollution threat continued. EPA inspectors in March 1986 found the facility in a, quote, state of complete despair, end quote, with the facility's manager telling the inspectors that disposal of a toxic pile of lead flue dust was impossible because the company was bankrupt. 
Eventually, only a single employee, the company's bookkeeper, was left at the site. He told item inspectors that all utility services were stopped at the facility due to non-payment and that people started breaking into the facility to steal equipment and recyclable materials. IDEM eventually took legal action against the company, forcing it to pay a $55,000 fine, create a closure plan, and take other actions to prevent pollution. In 1992, the EPA first proposed adding the facility to the national priorities list. As part of the process, the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry prepared a health assessment report in 1994 finding that lead and other contamination was present at least a half mile from the site and in surface water and sediments. The report also revealed that the state of Indiana had indications people living near the area may have been exposed to lead contamination for years. The Indiana State Board of Health conducted lead screenings for 53 children in East Chicago in 1985, finding that two of the children had moderately increased blood lead levels that could not be explained. More than a decade later, in 1996, the ISDH asked the disease registry to help it conduct a lead exposure investigation, singling out areas near the USS lead site. The agencies found that the West Calumet and Calumet communities were the populations at greatest risk to exposure to elevated lead levels. The agencies held free blood lead screenings for people living in the area for two days. They tested 95 people, including 30 children. 10 of those children had elevated blood levels. The agencies concluded the children were exposed to lead contamination either through lead-based paint or lead-contaminated soil. ISDH recommended conducting follow-up investigations. The sites now occupied by the school and the West Calumet housing complex were identified by the EPA as the former site of several separate lead smelting operations. The International Lead Refining Plant, owned by a subsidiary of the Anaconda Copper Mining Company, and a white lead unit owned by the Eagle Pilcher Company. The properties that eventually became the West Calumet Housing Complex were built right on top of the former site of the lead refining plant. Item tested surface soil at the school and the West Calumet Housing Complex July 1997, after the EPA noticed ongoing construction at the school. One of five soil samples from the school had lead levels above 400 parts per million. A second batch of samples confirmed the finding. Neither of two samples collected from the housing complex showed, quote, levels of concern. An independent study commissioned by USS Lead concluded that the company's air emissions likely did impact surrounding soil, but to a much lesser degree than other facilities in the area. Instead of being added to the national priorities list, the USS Lead facility was designated a Corrective Action Management Unit two years after the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry report. The designation allowed the EPA to clean up the facility and store contaminants on site and monitor it for 30 years. In 2008, the EPA found that 11 homes had lead levels above 1,200 parts per million, the EPA's regulatory removal action level. Over time, the EPA found even more contamination in nearby homes. The USS Lead site was added to the NPL in 2009, and the EPA began to investigate the extent of the lead contamination. More properties were found to be contaminated, and the EPA and IDEM decided on a cleanup plan for the site in 2012. The EPA would excavate soil from contaminated properties and replace it with clean fill. Efforts continued over years and more residences were found to have contamination. In 2016, the West Calumet Housing Complex in Zone 1 of OU1 
was found to have lead contamination with some samples from nearby yards showing lead levels over 70 times the U.S. safety standard. Blood samples from children living in the area showed high blood lead levels. The apartment complex was closed and demolished and more than 1,000 residents were forced to find new housing. The former site of the housing complex is still on the NPL, but local authorities and the EPA are planning on Zone 1's future. East Chicago Mayor Anthony Copeland sold the 49-acre site to a company that plans to develop the site into a logistics and distribution campus and warehousing complex. The East Chicago City Council rezoned the site from residential to light industrial use in hopes of a future removal from the MPL. The EPA deleted 671 residences in Zones 2 and 3 from the MPL on September 30th, saying the properties were cleaned up to standards set in 2012. The agency said the soil at the properties poses no unacceptable risk to human health and the environment. The deletion allows the city to redevelop vacant lots. It's unclear whether the East Chicago city government will move to rezone the recently deleted properties. For Ego Report, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. Now for our events calendar. There will be a Birds of Prey identity session at the Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife area on Saturday, November 7th from 10 a.m. to noon. Gather at the Visitor Center to learn how to identify birds of prey and about their role in wildlife. Bring water and wear clothing and footwear suitable for walking outdoors. You must wear a mask while inside the Visitor Center. The Sassafras Audubon Society is hosting a free bird walk on Friday, November 6th from 9 to 11 a.m. at the Flatwoods Park, a county park west of Ellisville. Enjoy a birding walk with your guide, David Rupp, of Indigo Birding Nature Tours. You will be searching for sparrows, kinglets, raptors, and more. Pre-registration is required. Contact Rupp at david at indigobirding.com or call 812-679-8978. Masks are mandatory. Travel off the public trails and into the bush for a hike through time on Sunday, November 8th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Leonard Springs Nature Park. Discover what was lost when the dam at Leonard Springs was first built. Learn the stories of those who came before and explore rarely seen portions of the park. The terrain is rugged, so please bring water and appropriate gear and dress and clothing for hiking off trail. Register at blooming.in.gov parks. A program on how animals get ready for winter will be presented at McCormick's Creek State Park on Sunday, November 8th at 2 p.m. Have you ever wondered where all the snakes, turtles, and lizards go in the winter? Meet at the Nature Center to meet some of the amphibians and reptiles that live at McCormick's Creek State Park and learn how they spend the winter in the wild. You must wear a face mask for the indoor program. Join the naturalists at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, November 14th, from 1 to 2.20 p.m. for a rugged 80-minute hike to hear about all things Spring Mill Lake. Learn about Spring Mill Lake history, Rubble Spring, the critters that call the lake home, and the lime kilns. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center. Masks must be worn while inside the Activity Center. 
And that wraps up our show for this week. The Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report.